was around about a year ago, I um, had somebody come up to me in worship, this dude named Mark, and he had expressed an interest in possibly leading a small group or a Bible study or something like that, and I don't know who this guy is. So uh, we went out to lunch, we went out to Coco's, and I had some materials for him, and I was prepared to teach him how to teach a Bible study, and uh, he let me talk very politely. And then he presented a giant binder of Bible studies that he's taught. I said, oh, so this guy already knows what's up. <laughs> and so Mark uh, led some Bible studies over the course of this past school year, and several of you um, had a chance to attend those studies. Um, we're so glad to have him and his family as a part of Hope. And uh, so without further delay, please join me in welcoming Mark Elias into the stage. Mark. Check one, check. Am I on? Yeah. All right, awesome. How's everybody doing today? Everybody good? Uh, thank you for all being here. I just want to make a special shout out that my parents are here today, Fred and Marlon, and my mother-in-law, Robin, is here joining us. Yeah. <clears throat> so this, this better be good, right? <laughs> so when... John asked me to, when Josh asked me to do the Father's Day message, I thought to myself, I'm the last person to give fatherly advice. I mean, let's be honest. I am 10% Fred McMurray and Father Knows Best, and 90% Ray Romano, everybody loves Raymond. All right, that's just who I am. So I just figured, well, I'll just use some examples from the Bible, pick some fathers from the Bible. I could talk about God being our heavenly father, but that's a very high standard to live up to. Then I figured, what about Adam? Adam was the father of all mankind, but kind of hard to relate to. Then I thought about what about the forefathers, or the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, but there's a lot of dysfunction going on there. <clears throat> then what about David? There's a man after God's own heart. But then he had that little thing with Bathsheba, had her husband murdered, and then Absalom, one of his sons, wanted to kill him, so not, not there. <laughs> then how about um, Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived? But then he had like 700 wives, which means he probably had over 1,000 children. Could you imagine what Father's Day would have been like back in the palace? <clears throat> but then the Holy Spirit led me to two names. One is a name that everyone has heard of, and the other name is probably 99.999% never even heard of. So the first name is Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. Everybody's heard of him, right? The second name is Heli. Now, who in the world is Heli? Well, Heli is the father of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. Now, how do we know this? Well, in the New Testament, there are two genealogies of Jesus, one in Matthew and one in Luke. And the two genealogies trace through two of David's sons. Matthew traces Joseph's line, David to Joseph, and Luke traces Mary's line from David to Mary. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, it reads, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. And then in Luke 3.23, says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, or so it was thought of, of Joseph, the son of Heli. So on the surface, it looks like we have a contradiction. However, the issue is very simple. In Matthew, Jacob is the father of Joseph. 
in Luke, Heli is listed as the father of Joseph, who we believe had two daughters. The first was Mary, and the other was Zebedee's unnamed wife. In Matthew 27, 56, it says, among those who were there at the cross, there was Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And then in John 19, 25, it says, but standing at the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, it's possible, I'm not quite sure, maybe Josh can shed more light on this, it's possible that her name was Salome in Mark's account. According to Leviticus 27 and Leviticus 36, when there were no sons to preserve the inheritance in accordance with the law of Moses, the husband would become the son upon marriage to keep up the family name. Therefore, Joseph, when he married Mary, became the son of Heli, according to the law of Moses, and could be legally included in the genealogy. So the first question is, what did Heli do that was so great? Well, nothing great, just as something that I think every father should do. In Luke 1, verse 30, when Gabriel comes to Mary, he says, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now, some religions will take that verse and say Mary was sinless. However, Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, not even one. And Romans 3.23, for all of sin fall short of the glory of God. But I believe that God found favor with Mary because she was fully prepared for the task that God called her to do. Mary was fully prepared physically, emotionally, mentally, socially, and spiritually. Now remember, when God called Mary, she was anywhere between the age of 12 and 16, and 16 being on the high side. Because back in that culture, as soon as a girl was able to have children, she was basically shipped off, her job was to make babies, and to help run the family. Now Joseph was probably much older, maybe in his 20s. Now, don't freak out about that. That was just the culture back in that time. And it was common for the man to live at home for a while, to establish his trade, save enough money to start a family. And a lot of times, once the family got married, they would move into the husband's house. So why was it important for Mary to be prepared physically, emotionally, mentally, socially, and spiritually? Why was, why was that so important? Well, let's take a look at it, some things. She had to be physically prepared because over the next two years or so, she would be doing a lot of traveling. First, she visits her cousin Elizabeth, who is six months pregnant with John the Baptist. Then she has to go to Bethlehem because of the census from Caesar Augustus. Then from Bethlehem, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus have to flee to Egypt. And then from Egypt, travel all the way back up to Nazareth. Just in those two years or so, it is estimated that Mary walked over 900 miles. I don't think I've walked 900 miles in the last 25 years. <laughs> so therefore, she had to be in good physical shape. How was Mary emotionally prepared? Well, first she had to tell her family that she was pregnant and it wasn't Joseph's child. Now, wouldn't you want to be a fly on the wall for that one? But we can conclude that the family, after the first initial shock, knew that all this was from God. Because first, Joseph has a, a dream. He's visited by an angel in a dream. And the angel says, do not be concerned to take Mary as your wife. This is from God. 
and we'll, we'll get to Joseph later. Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, she knew, because Elizabeth told Mary that when she greeted her, the baby in her womb leaped for joy. Hmm, there's a good pro-life verse. Anyway, um, Elizabeth said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then there was the stress of not just being pregnant, but pregnant with God in the flesh. It's mind-boggling to think that Mary was responsible for the Savior of the world. That had to be emotionally draining on her. In the classic Christmas song, Mary Did You Know, the Kenny Rogers version, the one line states that when you kissed your little baby, you kissed the face of God. That's just mind-boggling. But it had to be really emotionally straining on Mary, knowing that she was responsible for the Savior of the world. How was Mary mentally prepared? Well, when they were in Bethlehem, they had this little dilemma on where to give birth. Now, I, personally, I believe, based on Scripture, that there's a lot of Christmas story misconceptions. We, we, all, we all know these story. Mary and Joseph are traveling to Bethlehem by themselves. Joseph is walking. Mary's riding a donkey. They get to Bethlehem. The streets are crowded. There's nowhere to stay. They knock on an inn. The innkeeper says, I have no room, but I have a stable out back. You can go there. And Mary and Joseph go in, back at the stable, and that's where Jesus is born. I'm kind of not buying that, because that's not what it says in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the Greek word Luke uses for inn is kataluma, which actually refers to a guest room in a house, not a hotel. Unlike the Greek word uses for inn in the story of the Good Samaritan, which is panchodian, which actually means an inn or a public house for reception of guests. In Young's literal translation of the Bible, they actually use guest chamber. It says there was no room in the guest chamber. And we can assume, and it's very possible, that the house was very crowded because both sides of the family had to go to Bethlehem. Mary's side of the family and Joseph's side, they all had to travel together down to Bethlehem because they were all from the house of David. And the reason why Mary could not give birth in a crowded guest room can be found in Leviticus chapter 15, verses 19 to 23. And you can read that on your own because it's kind of gross. So Mary and Joseph had to think, where can we go? And I believe, according to Scripture, they ended up at a place with incredible significance, the perfect place for the Lamb of God to be born. That was a clue, but that's another sermon for another time. How was Mary socially prepared? Well, after giving birth, she was going to be surrounded by strangers, shepherds. Imagine that, after giving birth, you're surrounded by all these strangers. Shepherds came. She encountered two more strangers at the temple, Simeon and Anna. And then six months to a year or so later, more strangers from the east came into her house. Wise men came, bringing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. How was Mary spiritually prepared? Well, she knew the law of Moses. She knew the Psalms, she knew the stories, and she understood her nothingness before God. And we'll get into that. 
In Luke 1, verses 46 to 55, we have what's called the Magnificent, which is Mary's song of praise. Her song of praise is very familiar to the song of praise by Hannah back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah, who was considered barren, unable to have children, was blessed with a son whose name was Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, Hannah sings, My heart rejoices in the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. Mary, in Luke 1, verse 46, she sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. <clears throat> Just stop there for one second. Mary knew she was a sinner and knew she needed a Savior. Matthew 5, 3, part of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Basically, blessed are those who understand their nothingness before God. That was Mary. Back to Hannah, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. She sings, There is none holy like the Lord. In verse 49, Mary sings, Holy is his name. Hannah, verse 4, The bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Mary, he has poured down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. Hannah, in verse 5, Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Mary, in verse 53, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary also makes several references from the book of Psalms. Psalm 8, 138, 111, 103, and 78. So the question is, how did Mary get so prepared for this task that God called her to do? Who was responsible for that? Why did God find favor in her? He, Lee, her father, he prepared her. Probably unknowingly, but he prepared her for the task God called her to do. And he, Lee, is our example as fathers. As fathers, we need to fully prepare our kids physically, emotionally, mentally, socially, and spiritually. One, so they can survive this world. But second, that Lord willing, God will call them to a task. Probably not as big as Mary's, but call them to a ministry. And when God does, they need to be ready. Jesus himself had to be fully prepared for his mission. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. We need to constantly teach and prepare our kids. Deuteronomy 11.19 says, Teach your children when you sit at home or when you're walking along the road or at night before bed or in the morning when they wake up. <clears throat> Ronald Reagan once said, All great change in America begins at the dinner table. If we want to make America great again, we need to change the hearts of all Americans. And the first place to start is within our own family. We need to prepare our kids for God's calling so that one day they can go and change the hearts and lives of others. Now let's talk about Joseph. What is the definition of character? Well, I believe character is who you are when no one is watching. Joseph was a man of character. We mentioned that Joseph was the son of Jacob. Doesn't that sound familiar? Because back in the Old Testament, Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. 
I don't know if there's any connection. I don't know, but it's weird. Our Joseph here was a carpenter, and Joseph was not wealthy. According to Luke 24, 224, the offering Mary and Joseph brought to the temple on the occasion of Mary's purification from childbirth was the offering of a poor man, a pair of doves or pigeons, as described in Leviticus 12.8. So let's talk about Mary's predicament and Joseph's dilemma. Joseph was faced with the pregnancy of his betrothed. He was probably embarrassed by the whole situation. And he alone knows that he's not the father. Mary's pregnancy had placed her at considerable risk in that society. First, let's look at the husband, the husband's point of view of all this. According to the husband, her betrothed husband would reject her. Her pregnancy would embarrass him and reflect on his character. She couldn't expect him to understand or accept her condition. The penalty? At worst, she could be stoned. The law provided in cases of possible stoning, according to Deuteronomy 22, especially if the man and the married woman were caught in the act of adultery. And stoning for adultery still took place in first century Palestine. And then her shunning. At best, her family would allow her to live at home, though her supposed adultery would hurt their standing in the community. Her and her child would be shunned. Remarriage? No upstanding man would ever marry her, since the stigma of her supposed adultery would remain with her and ruin any reputation of any husband. And finally, nowhere to go. She couldn't go into the city. Single women just didn't live alone. And this was a family-centered culture where a woman's work was around the home and in the family. There was no work for single women except maybe housekeeper at a wealthy home. So Mary's prospects were grim, but she did agree to this pregnancy. In Luke 1.38, she said to the angel, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. But her decision may have cost her everything. Now here's where we begin to see the character of Joseph. Matthew 1.19 says, Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So Matthew says that Joseph was a righteous man. Righteous meant that Joseph carefully observed the law and valued his own reputation. By Joseph marrying Mary, he would compromise himself in the eyes of the law. But his righteousness went much deeper than a mere external righteousness according to the law. He was honorable and he wanted to do the right thing. The wrong thing would be to demand public prosecution for her adultery, expose her to public disgrace, make her a public example. But instead of a messy public trial, he decided to divorce her quietly. According to one commentary I read, it says he would simply write out a certificate of divorce and present it to her in the presence of two witnesses as required by law. And to avoid the accusation of adultery as a result for the divorce, Joseph could have offered a less serious grounds acknowledged by the Pharisees. To divorce quietly meant to divorce leniently. And so Joseph decided to divorce Mary. But to do it in such a way as to protect her as much as, as, much as he could, given the situation. 
Joseph was a righteous man, but not full of himself. Joseph was a man seeking to do the right thing. So fathers, we need to be men of character, men of integrity, men willing to do the right thing. The story about Bobby Jones, not Bobby Jones, the former basketball player who played for the Sixers, who's probably one of the best six men to ever come off the bench. Not that Bobby Jones. Bobby Jones was one of the greatest golfers to ever play the game. He is known for winning the Grand Slam of golf, winning all four major tournaments in the U.S. and Britain in a single year. In 1925, playing in the U.S. Open at a certain point in the match, Jones was setting up to hit his ball, which was in the rough, just off the fairway. His club accidentally touched the ball. He immediately became angry with himself, turned to the marshals, and called a penalty on himself. But the marshals had not seen the ball move. So they left the decision to Jones whether to invoke the penalty, a two-stroke penalty. Bobby called the penalty on himself, not knowing that he would lose the tournament by a single stroke. When praised for his honesty, he replied, well, you may as well praise a man for not robbing a bank. Jones may have lost a tournament, but his character was legendary. And today, the United States Golf Association's award for sportsmanship is known as the Bobby Jones Award. We said earlier that character is who you are when no one is watching. Character is how you treat people who can do absolutely that can do absolutely nothing for you. Character is how you react when the pressure is on. Character is deciding beforehand that you are going to do the right thing. Proverbs 27:19, which is our verse this morning. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. Charles Stanley said, not Andy Stanley, this is Daddy Stanley. Daddy Stanley said, The time you spend alone with God will transform your character and increase your devotion. Then your integrity and godly behavior in an unbelieving world will make others long to know the Lord. So fathers, let's be men of good character in our home, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, even when nobody is watching. So let's get back to Joseph. Matthew 1, 20 to 21 says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So in Matthew 1.20, Matthew 2.13, Matthew 2.19, three times we have a record of God speaking to Joseph and is through an angel of the Lord appearing to him in a dream. And each time when he wakes up, he immediately obeys the word of God. Joseph doesn't think about it. He doesn't debate it. He doesn't flip a coin. He doesn't turn over tarot cards. He doesn't read his horoscope. He doesn't consult his therapist. He immediately obeys the word of God. And there's one other command that Joseph obeyed, and it's in Matthew 1.21 where God said, 
you are to give him the name Jesus. Joseph is commanded to personally name the child. And this is very significant. It means that Joseph, in naming the child, acknowledges him as his own son and becomes the legal father of the child according to the law. And as a result of this legal adoption, Joseph's ancestry as a descendant of David transfers to Jesus. So biologically, Jesus is begotten by the Holy Spirit and is the Son of God. But legally, he is the son of Joseph and heir to the promises of David, Joseph's ancestor. Because in Luke 1.23, Gabriel promised Mary, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. So in Joseph naming the baby and therefore adopting him, David becomes Jesus' earthly ancestor. So we see Joseph obeying God's word. In our hands, we have the word of God. Question, how much do we obey the word of God? When we are obedient, we show God that we love him and have more faith in him than we do ourselves. To obey God means to give up what we want and to choose to do what he asks. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, by my calculations, there are three basic commands Jesus gave us. They are, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then, go and make disciples. Not just fathers. This is for everyone. But if everyone followed these three commands, I believe the church would be unstoppable just by following these three simple commands. Tasha, on Mother's Day, shared a story that her kids were able to see her loving her neighbor. If our kids could see us loving God, loving our neighbor, and see us sharing the gospel, I believe that would leave a lasting impression on them. So, recap. Fathers, we need to prepare our kids constantly, throughout the day, whenever we can. Prepare them physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, and of course, spiritually. Fathers, we need to be men of good character, men of integrity, men willing to do the right thing. And finally, obey God's commands. Allow our kids to see us being obedient to God, just like we want them to be obedient to us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we could come together into your house of worship. We just thank you for everybody that's here. We thank you that you are our Heavenly Father. And I just pray that we can just take these words and apply this message to, to our lives, to be men of integrity, men of character, to prepare our kids. I just pray now that what we learn, we can take and use in our daily lives. Again, thank you for this time. Thank you for your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.